Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Join in on a great conversation today with one of the world's great influencers as they showcase the latest tricks and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome to The Spotlight. I'm your host, Tony D'Urso. The Spotlight focuses on highlighting stars, greats, and game changers. We broadcast every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, so please set your calendar to hear from the world's elite. Today's Spotlight interview is with New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry talking about The Bishop's Pawn, which was just released. But first, some breaking news. I'm going on television in the near future on another show called Revenue Chat TV, and I'll be broadcasting over many platforms such as Amazon TV, Apple TV, Roku, the Voice America TV network, and others. When it goes live, you'll see them on my mobile app at tonydurso.com slash mobile. Download that now and you'll see my other weekly talk shows. Column 1 has all the spotlight episodes such as this show you're listening to now. Column 2 has my Revenue Chat radio podcasts, which feature elite entrepreneurs who discuss how they overcame obstacles and made it to success in their field. And when the TV show comes on, you'll catch it on this app. So please go ahead and download it at tonydurso.com slash mobile. All right. Today we set the stage for the spotlight to chat with New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry talking about The Bishop's Pawn, which was just released. Steve is the New York Times and number one international best-selling author of 13 Cotton Malone adventures and four standalone thrillers. His books have been translated into 40 languages with more than 22 million copies in 51 countries. They consistently appear in the top echelon of the New York Times, the U.S. Today, indie bestseller lists, and others. And also, a 2010 NPR survey, it named The Templar Legacy as one of the top 100 thrillers ever written. Steve just released his amazing book, The Bishop's Pawn, to discuss why was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. murdered. Let's find out more about this. Here we go. Welcome to the Spotlight, Steve. Great to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is mine, Steve. In our last interview was about your other great book, The Lost Order, and it's such an honor to have you back again, this time with another riveting book. So thank you, and I am so looking forward to finding out more about this book, Steve. But first things first, could you tell us what made you get into becoming an author? Well, it's that little voice in your head that every writer has. It's uh, It just it doesn't tell you to write a bestseller and sell a bunch of books and that kind of thing. It just says, I need you to sit down and write. If you will sit down and write, I will hush. If you don't, I'm going to kind of nag you and nag you and nag you. And I had that little voice for about 10 years. And finally, in the summer of 1990, I listened to it. And I sat down and started to write. But unfortunately for me, from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word was 12 years. Oh, my goodness. And I wrote eight manuscripts during that time. Five went to New York publishing houses. They were rejected 85 times. Oh, it was my only eight, goodness. It was only 86th time that I finally made it. Uh, I was in the right place, right time, right story. 
12 years later on the 86th time, and that was the Amber Room that came out in 2003. And I've been very fortunate that the books have built on each other, one after the other, and um, now I get to do this full-time, and I got like 23 million books around the world in 50 countries, so it's, I have to sort of pinch myself. It's, quite, um, it's just been an amazing run. That is astounding, Steve. And it's quite a story of perseverance and inspiration that if you just keep at it and keep at it and never fail, well, I'm, you know, I'm never quit, the, I mean, you'll, you won't fail. No, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'd say all the time I may not know much about writing, but I'm a world-class expert on rejection. I understand that very well, and I learned how to turn it to my advantage, and I am sort of living proof that you can do it. It can be done. And So when people say, I can't do that, well, actually you can, because I started with nothing and, uh, and made it, and, and it was uh, hanging in there and sticking with it. I'm very impressed. I've written a couple of books nowhere near the size of notoriety that you've received, but someday I'm just going to keep at it. I know someday I'll get higher and higher with each book. Of course, each book does better and better. That's the, that is the goal. And in my case, it did do that. And for a lot of other people, it does too. You, but you make your own luck by hanging in there. Exactly. Steve, out of all your books, what's your favorite book or series that gives you the most pleasure to write? I love all my children equally, so it's hard for me to to pick one of them. They're they're all special to me, and each one was written special, and each one had great meaning to me. So it's hard for me to put a to point to one in particular. Each one of my books are, was unique, and it was a subject matter that I cared about, and I I enjoyed looking into. So I don't really have a a favorite per se. I kind of like I like them all. I like how you call them children. That's very enduring endearing very similar very similar to a, a child you you conceive it and you you come up with the idea and conceive it and then you have to uh bring it forth into the world and then you have to watch it grow and it, it it's very similar to that i like steve do you look only for mystery espionage and so forth how do you pick a topic to write about well i have to find a topic that interests me because I'm going to spend 18 months with it. So I've got to like it. And then I have to make sure that the reader is going to like it too, because, you know, that's the whole idea is for the reader to read it and to tell other people to read it. Another trick is I have to think two years out because I stay about two years ahead of myself. So I have to think what's going to be interesting two years from now. And then I have to find that thing from the past that, that thing that's lost or forgotten, that thing that you may not know a lot about, but you want to know more about. And it has to be real, can't be made up. And then that thing from the past has to still be relevant today. And I call that the so what. So I have a, a lot of criteria that have to come into play to get the idea to make it work. And, and all of those have to factor in and all of those have to be there for it, for it to, uh, to make the grade. I see. And when you set out to write a book, and I know that you're planning this two years and you're developing the topic, do you have an end goal in mind for the consumer? In other words, what do you want to, people to get out of your books? I want them to be entertained. That's all I want. Uh, I'm a commercial fiction writer. My job is to entertain you. Uh, people say all the time, well, you have messages in your books. No, I really don't. I didn't, I didn't put them there. If you think there's a message there, that's something you can think. I didn't put it there. 
I write books to entertain people. But along, if along the way, I can also inform you on something you may not know a lot about, something that you may find interesting, something from history that you didn't really didn't know before. Well, that's just an added benefit on top of it. But the primary goal is to entertain you. And a thought just came in my mind. We're going to talk about the Bishop's Pawn in just, just a moment here. But some of your topics can be and are controversial. And do you ever worry about stepping on someone's toes? We're going to get into that in just a minute. And the first thing I thought of when I read about this book is like, you're not worried about stepping on someone's toes or embarrassing someone. What's your take no. on that? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't embarrass anyone. I I'm consciously don't do that. Uh, I, I'm very careful about those things. I'm very respectful. In this book with the Bishop's Pawn, I was very respectful of, of Dr. King's heritage, and in, I was very uh, uh, respectful of his message. The book has a very positive message at the end. It does have a, a surprise in it, something that's going to shock the reader and throw him a little bit off guard. But I was careful that I that I did not in any way disparage things. Now, that doesn't mean that I that I glossed over things. We dealt with some aspects of Dr. King's life that, you know, there were some negative aspects of it. There's some of that in the novel that's also in there. But uh, I was just careful with that. I don't I don't intentionally set out to to uh, to embarrass or humiliate anyone. In fact, just the opposite of that. I'm very respectful. I wrote a book, uh, The Columbus Affair, that dealt with the. Uh, with a very interesting aspect of the Jewish religion that I knew nothing about, and I, I was very careful with that. And the Lincoln myth dealt with the Mormons, which are fascinating to me. The religion is, is quite interesting, and uh, all of that was incorporated into the novel. I got you. All right, well, let's discuss your latest masterpiece here, The Bishop's Pawn. And I'm going to give just a tiny introductory prelude to that. The counterintelligence program Pro was created by the FBI in the 1950s and continued into the 1970s. CoinTelPro systematically engaged in thousands of illegal wiretappings, burglaries, character assassinations, slanders, libels, blackmails. I mean, it just goes on. Let's start there. How did this come about in terms of when you were weaving your story about, I presume you started to write about Dr. King's murder, and then this came out. Let's start from there. Can you tell us about that? Well, here's an exception where you don't set out to disparage anything, because it's it's impossible not to talk about the counterintelligence program without being disparaging, because it was the most corrupt organization ever created by the United States government. So there's really nothing good to be said about it. There's really no positive things to be said. It should have never existed. Uh, everyone who associated with it, including J. Edgar Hoover, should have gone to prison for their association with it. But it was a different time, and you could get away with things back then that you could not get away with today. But the counterintelligence program really set out, and it was used by Hoover to destroy people. And he targeted the civil rights movement, and Dr. King in particular. Uh, from 1963 to 1968, they waged a war against Martin Luther King, and it's uh, detailed in the novel. That stuff is all there. It's all true. Uh, I used a lot of their actual language and their actual reports, uh, and I was I did a lot of research on that. And the Conintel Pro program was, as I said, quite shocking. I think Americans today would go like, "Wow!" I mean, how did they get away with that? Well, it was just a different time. It ended in 1972 with Hoover's death. It was exposed in 1975 as part of the uh, church 
committee the uh, at the United States Senate that investigated the FBI. So it all got came out. So we know for a fact all of it happened because it was all revealed back in those days. So it it figures very prominently in the novel. It has a lot to do with the with what Cotton Malone gets caught up in. And Steve, take us back to that time period just a little bit. What was the U.S. so afraid of back then? that had to resort to such activities on its own citizens. Simple. Communism. Really? That was the Cold War. That was the height of the Cold War. Uh, communism was the threat. Everyone was terrified of it. Everyone was terrified that the Soviet Union was going to bomb the United States. I mean, we had we had air raid drills back then. We had drills in schools of an atomic bomb attack. Uh, we, it was It was all about communism. Now, that might have been a legitimate fear at that point in time for people. We look back on it now and say, well, no, it probably wasn't. But they didn't know that at the time. But what happened was is Hoover used that as an excuse to branch out and start dealing with anything he considered a threat to the United States. And Hoover considered the civil rights movement a threat to the United States. And why is Never that, please? Him. Oh, because he was a racist and a bigot. It's just that simple. He he was clearly a racist and clearly a bigot, and he didn't make a whole lot of secret of it, actually, of how he felt. Uh, he did not feel like that that movement had any legitimacy. He felt like that it was designed to undermine uh, what he considered the American way. And uh, he set his agents in the counterintelligence program out and told them to destroy it in any way they could. They did not succeed in that, but they certainly gave it a try. How interesting. This is The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Just ahead, the chat continues with Steve Barry, the Bishop's Pawn. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. guys, Tony D'Urso here, and I have to say thank you. Thanks a million. A million downloads, that is. Go to TonyDurso.com slash donation and read all about the exciting next adventure we have in store for you. That's TonyDurso.com slash donation. And once again, thanks a million. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You have a message. You want to share that message. You want it to be social, to go viral, and spread across the planet. But how do you get started? Tune into Amplify, featuring host Ken Roshan. This show is here to help you take that message and channel it through the most effective marketing techniques to not only be successful, but have a positive impact on the world. Tune in live Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel and get amplified. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events 
to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We don't follow. We lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. Listening to the Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDURSO.com. Now, back to the Spotlight. All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on the Spotlight. Today's show is with Steve Barry, the Bishop's Pawn. History lies at the heart of every Steve Barry novel, it's his passion and one he shares with his wife, Elizabeth, which has led them to create History Matters, a foundation dedicated to historic preservation. Since 2009, Steve and Elizabeth have crossed the country to save endangered historic treasures, raising money via lectures, receptions, galas, luncheons, dinners, and their popular writer's workshops. To date, more than 3,000 students have attended these workshops and over a million dollars has been raised. All right. And now back to the chat with Steve. And is it really true? I, I don't mean to doubt anything. Just it's, huh? it's I, I say it in disbelief, even though, of course, it's true. Yeah. That Dr. King was actually sent a letter, a note, a message asking him or encouraging him to take his own life. Back, this is yeah, back in 1964. <laughs> Yeah, it was sent right before he went to take his, uh, to accept his Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, they also sent to his house at the same time uh, some audio recordings that they had made of Dr. King in private, uh, things that, uh, sexual recordings in which he was doing things, and they were, those were sent to his wife. Uh, the note that was included in there, which is in the novel, I actually reproduced the note in the novel. Uh, it doesn't come right out and say you need to kill yourself, but it certainly implies that. That's exactly what they're talking about. The FBI explained it in 1975 that they didn't mean that he should kill himself. We meant he should just resign from the movement. But that's not exactly what it says. If you meant that, you should have said that. That's not what you said. So they were certainly encouraging uh, something a little more drastic. Uh, again, today, shocking. Today, we would wonder, you know, why are... Why are these people put in jail or something's happened? But again, back then, different time. I mean, clearly blackmail. I'm just curious as a side note, that was 1964. He's he's given that threat. What happened then? Did it, Obviously, he didn't take his life. So did they release that? Was that was he publicly embarrassed now? What happened there? 
No, they did not release the tapes because uh, Lyndon Johnson told uh, put a stop to it. Lyndon Johnson told Hoover, no, you're not to do that. Uh, Hoover told everyone he could about them, but he never released the tapes. Hoover had to be careful. He could push only so far because he knew that the president could fire him. So he didn't push the president beyond a point of no return. Johnson used Hoover. He used him to his advantage to gather information on his enemies. Uh, He made good use of him. Hoover used Johnson to stay in power. But the one thing he could not do was directly defy him. And the president of the United States ordered him he was not to do it. And, of course, that was in 1965. And, of course, three years later, King is dead. And at that point, releasing those tapes made no difference. Hoover had what he wanted. King was gone. They stayed secret until the 1970s when the church committee discovered them. I see. Steve, can you tell us about the final years of King's life? You you researched this so much, and you say in your own notes there was a lot of disappointment, disillusion, that he had, there was depression. And even though he had a strong message of nonviolence that I guess there's this under undertide It was beginning to be ignored. People wanted to do more. Can you kind of walk us through that period there? The last year of his life was was pretty miserable. He was depressed. He was gaining weight. He was drinking more than he needed to, smoking too much. It was just uh, nothing about it was going right. The nonviolence movement was losing steam. The violence movement was beginning to take over. His message of nonviolence was beginning not to be heard. He came out against the Vietnam War in April of 1967, and and Lyndon Johnson turned on him, so he no longer had the president's ear. The white community resented that he interjected himself into the Vietnam War. Uh, They didn't like it that he was interjecting himself into that. The black community likewise didn't like it because they wondered, why are you doing that when we have all of our problems over here? He, He just was in a bad place, a very, very bad place. The night before he died, he went and gave a speech that has become known as the Mountaintop Speech. It was uh, given that evening, more uh, quite remarkable because he had no prepared notes. He made up every word as he was speaking. If you listen to that uh, speech, and I, I have an excerpt of it in the novel. The King family gave me permission to put an excerpt of it in the novel. If you look at that speech, it absolutely sounds like a man who knows he's about to die. The whole speech is about mortality. It's very poignant, and it's quite, you know, interesting to to look at and and listen to and 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 hear the words, knowing what happened the next day. And that's where the no- idea of the novel came from. The whole idea of the novel came from after I listened to the mountaintop speech. I see. And as an aside, who was running the violence movement if he was running the nonviolence and was trying to get some traction there and was losing ground? Where was this violent movement coming from? There was a whole segment of, of, of uh, a whole segment of the Black Panthers. Uh, there was a whole segment of the black community, which had had enough of nonviolence, had enough of being spit on, enough of being hit with fire hoses and enough of dogs being sicked on them. They just had enough. And this actually culminated in Memphis. There was a, a walk down in Memphis that happened a few days before he was killed that turned violent, turned very much violent. Who, who was in charge of that walk? Was that King's Walk? He was. King, oh. King's Walk. It was King's March that turned violent, and he was very much taken aback by it. He was very much disturbed by what happened in that march with all the violence that happened. 
And he almost didn't go back, but he determined that he had to go back and do the march again. Well, they actually got an injunction to stop the march. The, the city did. And a federal judge on April 4th, the day he died, a federal judge lifted that injunction and allowed the march to go on. And it would have gone on a couple of days later. But of course, he didn't live long enough for that to happen. Oh, my goodness. Can you take us back into Memphis, Tennessee a little bit? In fact, take us into the U.S. What was happening at the time? I get the Vietnam. I get that the the black community was getting tired of what you say. What do you think was going to happen or would have happened if King had remained alive? Well, that's a very good question. We don't know the answer to that. We know that his death reignited interest in the nonviolent movement. America burned in the summer of 1968. There's no question about that. I mean, the reaction to King's death was uh, rioting all across the country. And then it stopped. After the, the Democratic Convention in August of 68, things calmed down and everything began to, to go back in the way of, 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 of the way he liked to have seen it done without violence. There was, there was periodic pieces here and there, but nothing like what happened in the summer of 1968 in reaction to his death. If he had lived, it is entirely possible that the, the, not, the, the violent movement of the, of the civil rights movement might have taken hold. We don't really know what, where, where that would have gone or what would have happened. We know that what happened after his death was that his message began to take on a greater significance. And the novel deals with this. The novel deals with this possibility and why that possibility is very important. I see. And I, I wonder, you know, we don't know because history's changed, but there were, of course, riots and a lot of chaos in the U.S. after his death. And I wonder... Is that what the U.S. and the FBI and Hoover was afraid of at the beginning? Because this murder actually became the catalyst now to make that happen. This, did they wind up getting what they were trying to avoid? Exactly what they got. They got exactly what they, what they feared the most. And the one guy who was stopping all of that from happening was King himself. That's, it's, it's a little bit of an irony that, that Hoover's efforts led to America being basically burning in the summer of 1968. And it was a, you know, a, a very difficult time for this country in 1968. So it fundamentally altered America. Yes, it did. And Hoover kind of got his wish. But in the end, the message took back hold again and everything calmed down. I see. Now, you make a note that King was, uh, the day before he died, that he was repeatedly warned to stay inside his room at the Lorraine Motel. Yet, I believe it was April 4, he went out on his balcony, on the second floor balcony, and that's when he was, was shot. So I'd like to know, who kept warning him to stay inside his room, or was that just some kind of a ruse or gimmick? No, no, he was told that Memphis was a dangerous place, and he knew that. He knew Memphis was a powder keg. And... Uh, his aides had advised him, and they had been advised by the local police that he should not make himself a target. He should make himself, you know, don't go out and, you know, obviously when he has to go to a march, he's going to be in something. But don't don't go out and do anything foolish when you're not in the, in the process of, of being in a march or something like that. Be careful. Yet he goes out on the balcony and stands for about 12 minutes in the open air. There he is. And James O'Reilly 
is in is in exact right position and he's ready to go. Ray loads one loads one bullet into the rifle and fires one shot and hits him right in the head. That is amazing. Now Ray was not a marksman. That's Ray even more amazing. Wow. He was not a trained marksman. So what are the odds of that? It's quite amazing, isn't it? He's out there. King's out there for twelve minutes, and James Earl Ray happens to be in the precise spot with one bullet. It just sounds too remarkable. It. What's the odds? That's what I always say. What are the odds? Unfortunately, we're never going to get answers to these questions. This is the spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Just ahead, we're going to find out more from Steve Barry, the Bishop's Pawn. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. Are you ready for provocative discussions with some of today's most powerful movers and shakers? Tune in to The Art of Significance, featuring Dan Clark, the modern-day Napoleon Hill, who interviews the wealthiest, most successful celebrities and business leaders on the planet who are using their influence to change the world. From authors to entertainers, sports figures, educators to military leaders, Dan covers multiple topics. Tune in every Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Listen for In the Limelight with Clarissa Burt, international media celebrity, supermodel, and renowned beauty and lifestyle expert, as well as founder and CEO of Envelop Her, multimedia platform for women and sought-after inspirational speaker on women's issues. You'll connect with Clarissa's super influence celebrity friends and experts as they speak about health wealth beauty lifestyle business the love of giving and the love of living a model life tune in every tuesday at 11 a.m pacific time 2 p.m eastern time on the voice america influencers channel the future of online tv is here view exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else visit voiceamerica.tv today the stories be motivated be inspired join us today voice america influencers you're listening to the spotlight with tony dierso we'd love to hear from you via email be sure to send questions and comments to tony at tony now back to the spotlight all right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on the Spotlight. Today's show is with Steve Berry, the Bishop's Pawn. Steve's devotion to historic preservation was recognized by the American Library Association, which named him its spokesperson for National Preservation Week. Among his other honors are the Royden B. Davis Distinguished Author Award, the Barnes & Noble Writers for Writers Award, given by Poets and Writers, the Anne Frank Human Rights Award, and the Silver Bullet bestowed by international thriller writers for his philanthropic work. He's also been named both the Florida and Georgia Writer of the Year. All right, back to the chat with Steve. The investigation of King's murder was bungled from the start. Uh, the FBI immediately assumed that Ray was the sole gunman working by himself. He had no help whatsoever. They never, ever considered any other possibility of anything. And they focused on him immediately. There was no trial, so none of this was ever aired out. Uh, no there was trial? No, 
no, he pled guilty. He pled guilty uh, to the murder, and uh, three days later, he recanted that and, pled, and, and spent the next 29 years proclaiming his innocence, but he pled guilty. There were three investigations of King's murder after his death in the 1970s, and then another in the, uh, well, in the 1990s, I'm sorry, in the 1990s. Uh, all three were tainted. All three uh, had predetermined outcomes and political motivations involved. Uh, there's never been an objective look at what happened, and there never can be now because all the evidence is gone. My goodness. In, in looking over the information of this, we've already acknowledged that King was under tight FBI surveillance right up until his murder. Everything, wiretapping, followed, yep. everything. Yet yep. here is someone that shot him and then turned into a worldwide manhunt for like two months. Two months there. And, he, and this petty thief, who was not very good at petty thieving because he got caught all the time, went to jail a whole bunch. He somehow manages to get out of Memphis to Atlanta, gets a fake Canadian passport, goes to Canada, goes to England, goes to Portugal, back to England, and finally gets caught two months later after the, great, the largest manhunt in American history. How did this guy who's not very bright pull all that off? What are the odds of that? Exactly. Can, can you tell us some more about James Earl Ray? You said he's a petty, petty thief. Give he's some... a petty thief, not a very bright guy at all. Certainly was a racist, certainly was a bigot. I don't think there's any question about that. Is that the reason he killed King? No. No, I, we can't say that. You can't, that. We don't know the answer to that question. We, we, we still, to this day, do not know why Martin Luther King was killed, and that's really what the novel deals with, is that question of why. But Ray himself was a pathological liar, just a, a very odd guy uh, who liked to hear himself talk. And but somehow managed to get himself at the right spot at the right moment where he could load one round and fire one shot. Unbelievable. Uh, um, it is. I mean, the, <laughs> the odds are quite incredible. But again, you know, we'll never know the answer, which makes it great for me, because as a novelist, I can have some fun with that. And I did. I speculated on some things. And uh, as I said, there's a. A surprising reveal in the novel that I think will catch the reader off guard. Good. And I'm not going to ask you what that is, but I have to just comment again. He confessed. He said he was guilty. Three days later, he said he's not guilty. And Correct. for the next 29, 30 odd years until he died, he kept saying he was innocent. He did. And he told 8,000 different stories. Oh. And he added to it each time and embellished it each time. As I said, he was a pathological liar. There was almost nothing James Orway said during those 29 years that is of any value because he would contradict himself the next time he spoke. So he was al almost the perfect guy to do this. Steve, are, he, there, are, are there drugs that can make someone susceptible to like hypnotic suggestions, which can then make them, make them plead guilty and then later wake up and say, oh, no, I really didn't do it? Those are drugs that could do anything like that, but James O'Reilly was not on drugs. He knew exactly what he was doing. You know, he pled not guilty. He had a lawyer. They were prepped for trial, ready to go. On the Friday before the trial, he changes his mind. <clears throat> Says, I'm pleading guilty. And then three days later, he changes his mind again. 
So Ray liked to be the center of attention. He liked people to focus on him, and that's what that's what he got for the next 29 years. He was a very important person in his own mind. I see, Steve. I read, true or false, that after he recanted the murder, that he was denied a new trial. I un- I yeah, get that he lied, but he wasn't given a new trial, even though he. No, they never. No, they never. They never reopened the case. It was done, gone, over. Uh, and there was. I mean, it was a defense lawyer's dream. That case was. Uh, I mean, they they can't match the slug taken from King to the gun because there was not enough of it left to match. The rifle fired consistently down into the right. The sight was wrong on it. There's no eyewitness to put Ray in the rooming house except one guy who didn't come forward till months later, and he was drunk the whole time that day by his own admission, but yet he places Ray in the rooming house. There is an eyewitness who placed Ray away from the scene in a car at the time of the shooting that who did come forward. It's like a defense lawyer's dream. There's so much reasonable doubt. Yet, he changes his plea, and he pleads guilty. How utterly strange. Can you give us any other inconsistencies about this story and the aftermath, the shooting, and so forth? Well, it's an interesting story of his escape. Uh, Ray gets, as I said, gets out of Memphis, even though the Memphis police knew that someone had fled the scene in a white Mustang, and they put out a bulletin for this Mustang. And then all at once over the CB radio, a guy gets on there saying that he's chasing a white Mustang and he's being shot at by a white Mustang. And he gives his position on the northern part of Memphis. And of course, all the cops go that way. Well, Ray's not there. He's headed south to Atlanta. That CB transmission actually happened. And to this day, no one knows who put it out there and why they put it out there. So obviously they put it out there to divert attention and give Ray a way to get away. The question is, who put it out there? That's just a, a fascinating thing. It's all in the novel. I recounted all I recounted all that in the novel. It was fascinating that that happened. And again, there's another example of something to be used at trial that, that never got a chance to be used. It's as if someone or some entity, some organization, whatever, was behind seeing that Ray actually made it out. Yeah, they were giving him, well, they were sending everyone to the north. He's headed to Atlanta. He's going south. So he's going in the completely opposite direction. Of course, the Memphis police didn't know that. They went after the car. That CB transmission was never authentic. No one ever found the person who was on the CB transmission. They never got any information whatsoever out of any of it. It just, it just worked to help Ray get away. And yet it was a real transmission. They actually had a rec- recording of it. Yes. The, the, there's, no, there's no recording of it, but there are witnesses who heard it. I got you. And another thing I, I looked up James Earl Ray, I found he died in prison of a supposed liver failure, and then his body was cremated and an autopsy was refused and not allowed. That's exactly right. I mean, he he died in prison. I mean, he was gone, and I, I don't know why they would want to autopsy him. There was nothing to autopsy. He 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 had cancer, and he died of that. So I don't I don't look at any great mystery with his death. 
except that it would have been nice if he'd have finally, you know, told us some things before he died. But as I said, he told a hundred different stories. We we have no clue. We we didn't get anything meaningful from James Orray. Nothing whatsoever. I got you. We've discussed a lot about Martin Luther King, James Earl Ray. Your book is called The Bishop's Pawn, so I have to ask you, who's the bishop? Well, it's a, that's part of what I made up. The Bishop's Pawn is a code name that the FBI used. They had code names for King, but none of them really fit what I wanted to do. They were somewhat derogatory, the code names were for King. They they. So I came up with the bishop and then the pawn. So when you read the novel, you'll know who the bishop is and you'll know who the pawn is. It becomes quite clear. I got you. And Steve, the $64 million question. Why do you think Dr. King was murdered? This is the Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Just ahead, Steve shares more insights and his contact info. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. Hey guys, Tony D'Urso here, and I have to say thank you. Thanks a million. A million downloads, that is. Go to TonyDurso.com slash donation and read all about the exciting next adventure we have in store for you. That's Tony, D-U-R-S-O dot com slash donation. And once again, thanks a million. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Want to improve your health, business, and life just by listening to a radio show? Well, we can at least move you in the right direction. Listen for Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. Each week, Allison will speak with amazing guests and find out what's changed their lives and how they are changing the lives of others. From beauty to health to business and personal relationships, we're here to inspire you to live your life of passion. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers channel. Do you believe that being fit is difficult? Do you think it requires turning in your favorite comfort foods for boring chicken and broccoli and spending hours in a gym? It doesn't. Tune into Have It All with Devin Alexander. Devin and her guest experts will show you how you can have it all at any age, from relationships to money to thinking bigger than you've ever imagined. Devin will fast track your goals to yummy reality. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDurso.com. Now, back to The Spotlight. 
All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on the spotlight. Today's show is with Steve Berry, the Bishop's Pawn. Steve was born and raised in Georgia, graduating from the Walter F. George School of Law at Mercer University. He was a trial lawyer for 30 years and held elective office for 14 of those years. He's a member of the Smithsonian Institution Libraries Advisory Board and is a founding member of International Thriller Writers, a group of more than 4,000 thriller writers from around the world, and he has served three years as its co-president. And now back to the chat. I have no idea. I really don't. I have no idea whatsoever. There's, you know, it's not simple as Ray was a bigot and wanted to kill him. It's just not, it's not that simple. Uh, It's more complex than that. James Earl Ray never did anything in his whole life unless he could make money at it. He never did anything for free. He didn't do anything just because he felt like it needed to be done or he had some type of great uh, belief or, or, or something inside of him driving it. He, this man worked for money. He was, that's what he was, for money. We'll never know. That's the problem. They bungled up everything so bad and they wanted it to go away so bad and they wanted it to be quiet and never to come up again that no one ever really looked at it like they should. There was no Warren Commission here that looked into it. And we'll never know now because all the participants are dead. They're gone. We have no way of knowing. So we will never know why. But the novel does venture an answer to that question. And I can't tell you what that is because it's the surprise of the novel. No problem. And I already know from interviewing you before that you are extremely thorough in your research. You take great care to make sure that all your facts are true and you paint a really good picture around a very true set of facts. So I I know that. So this is a delightful book. I know that it's going to be great. It's just come out. It's The Bishop's Pawn by Steve Barry. Get it anywhere your favorite, at your favorite bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. It's available all over. And just want to make sure everyone gets it and enjoys it. It's another great book by Steve Barry. And let's see. Steve, anything else that we should know about this book? We've, I think we've covered it pretty well. No, I think you just said it all right there, but they can check out more about that book and all my other books at my website, steveberry.org. Check it out there. Sounds good. Thank you. And on that note, Steve, I know you planned years in advance. You told us earlier. Can you give us a little maybe info snippet of what's to come? Yeah, you, we stay a year ahead in the book business, so I've already turned in next year's novel. It's Cotton's going to go back overseas. He's been in America for the last five, six books. And now he's going to head back overseas and get back to his roots of where we had overseas adventures for a while. So the first one's going to take place on the island of Malta. It's called the Maltese Exchange, and it's going to deal with the Knights of Malta, who is a really interesting organization that still exists to this day. And it's a, it's a fun adventure, and Malta is one of my favorite places in the world. So it was really cool to send cotton out there. If I recall my history correct, is that not the smallest country in the world? No, not Malta. The smallest country in the world actually is not the Vatican. People would say the Vatican. I know that. The smallest country, the smallest country in the world is, is controlled by the Knights of Malta in Rome. They have two villas 
in Rome, of which they are sovereign territory and are the smallest country in the world. And that's dealt with in the novel as well. That's right. It's the villas. That's right. Thank you. That's the villas. Yeah. Well, excellent. Excellent. And I think we've covered everything. Anything else? All right. No, that's great. Thank you. And (laughs) hope the readers check out the book. All right. Well, thank you very much. A very amazing interview, full of intrigue, espionage, you name it. New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry talking about The Bishop's Pawn. And I got to thank you again for taking the time and sharing this with us, Steve. I loved I loved it, and I loved this information, and I can't wait to check out the book. All right. Glad to be here. Thank you. Sure. And to our Spotlight audience, thanks again. It's our honor to have you listen. All right. Keep your focus on success, and I'll see you next on The Spotlight. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, enjoy the weekend.